the greatest movies of all time. I looked it up on Wikipedia, so it must be true. Is The Princess Bride. The 1987 adventure, comedy, romance. Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. What more could you want from a story? Those that don't love this are just uneducated Philistines that watch too many baseball movies. Not naming any names. Those who have seen it will remember that the story begins with two young lovebirds, Wesley, the farm boy, and Buttercup. Ten minutes into the movie, however, we find out that Wesley, before they were able to get married, has left to seek his fortune and been killed by pirates. Buttercup is very distraught, depressed. The evil Prince Humperdinck proposes marriage, and she sort of has to go along with it, even though she's not in love with him. She's not excited about it. But before they are able to marry, Buttercup is kidnapped by three men who want to start a war with her death. But before they're able to kill her, she is taken from them by a mysterious masked man whom the audience knows is her Wesley, but is in disguise and she doesn't recognize him. And he misleads her to think that he is the dread pirate Robert who has killed her true love. There's method to his madness, however. He thinks that she gave up on their love and that she fell in love with Humperdinck. Before he can reveal himself to her and resume their true love, he must be sure that she truly loved him and has not given her heart to another. So in his disguise, Wesley insults her and questions her until he can truly find out what the truth is about her feelings. Here in Genesis 42, we have a similar plot. It's not a romantic storyline, but a story of a family that has been separated and now brought back together. Our man Joseph, who we've been preaching on, reading for the last few weeks, has risen to great power in Egypt. He's brought back into contact with the brothers who had sold him into slavery 20 years earlier. And Joseph begins in this chapter an elaborate plot to find out the truth of who his brothers have become and to see if they've changed. Like Wesley, his disguise helps him pretend to be a different person, an angry person whose threats will help get at the truth. Do you remember Joseph's brothers? If you haven't heard all the sermon scriptures or read it in a while, he's got 11 brothers total born to four different mothers, but all sons of Jacob. Reuben, the firstborn, has slept with his father's maidservant, Bilhah, the one who was the mother of two of his half-brothers. Judah is the one who has accidentally hired his widowed daughter-in-law as a prostitute after denying her the customary marriage 
to his youngest son. And Simeon and Levi were the ones who tricked a whole tribe of men into being circumcised so that they could slaughter them as revenge for their sister being raped. And then all 11 of them essentially consent and agree to have Joseph sold into slavery. And they cover up their crime by planting false evidence that he, he was killed by wild animals. We don't know everything about these brothers, but what we do know is pretty negative. As we head into chapter 42, we've got to remember that Egypt has already experienced now the seven years of bountiful crops that Joseph had interpreted from Pharaoh's dreams. And now the seven years of famine have begun. So this first section, verses 1 through the first half of verse 9, records the brothers' unlikely reunion. So let's look at that reunion. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his fathers, for he, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Famine has become a common occurrence in the book of Genesis. Jacob is the third patriarch. Both Abraham and Isaac have had their times of famine and had to move to find uh, food to get away from the famine. But unlike them, Jacob doesn't have to move. He hears that there is grain in Egypt. And so he sends his sons. Essentially says, quit, quit just staring at each other. Go do something. Go find us some food. But you notice that he kept his youngest son, Benjamin. And I think it's a little deeper than this is just the, the youngest and that there's a sentimental attachment there. This is, he's the youngest, but he's also Rachel's only remaining son. Rachel's the woman that he loved the most, as we recall. She's, she's been gone now. She's died. And so he thinks has Joseph, her firstborn. So all he has to remember her is Benjamin. And Jacob can't be, bear to be completely left without any part of Rachel now, apparently the brothers have gotten used to this favoritism that they lived with their whole lives. And they just flow with it. They head out. They go to Egypt. They obey their dad, go down, um, and set an appointment with the governor there. Zaphoneth Pania, we find out, is his name from the last chapter, who we, of course, know is Joseph. But they don't. 
His brothers don't recognize him because he's, he's 20 years older than the last time they saw him. Joseph was thoroughly Egyptianized at this point. I found out that is a word on, according to the internet. Somebody's probably look, Googling it back there. But he's Egyptianized. He looks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. He dresses like them. Speaks like them. Right? And the brothers have no reason to think that he'd be there. Right? They, they left him with some Ishmaelites, traitors. He's dead for all they care, for all they know. How could he be the second in command in Egypt? So they're just not expecting it. And Jacob's kind of got an advantage on them, as we find out. They, they're speaking to each other through translators. And so Jacob, or Joseph, pretends that he doesn't know Hebrew. And so when they turn to speak to each other, he hears what they're thinking, what they think that he can't overhear. Joseph, at this point, has grown. We see that he's progressed from chapter 37 when he was a teenager. He was naive. In chapters 39 through 41, he was a persecuted yet hardworking noble man of integrity. But now in chapters 42 through 44, we're going to see he's, he's become a ruthless, calculating governor. He's still morally upright. He still has a strong faith in God. But now he's not at the mercy of anyone except Pharaoh. And he knows that he holds life and death in his hands for a lot of people. Verse 6, the brothers come, bow down to Joseph. Expected custom at the time. And we, we recognize this, and Joseph, even the text says that Joseph remembered his dreams. We recognize that this is a fulfillment of those dreams that Joseph had back in his teen years, of the wheat stalks bowing to his and the, the 11 stars bowing to him. But instead of jumping up and yelling, I told you so, brothers, my dreams were right. You are bowing down to me. Ah. Or instead of ripping off his headdress in anger and saying, hey, remember me? I'm that brother you sold, threw in a pit, and now you're going to pay. Right? He could have easily done that. But instead, he devises a scheme. He devises a test. And it's going to play out over several chapters of Genesis. Several weeks we'll be looking at sort of the brothers coming back and forth. But Joseph wants to know who they are, who they've become. So he brings this test, verses 9b through 20. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you 
and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of, our, of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Joseph's brothers, if you remember back, I keep referring back to his teenage years. There's a lot here. Um, they probably accused him of being a spy. When he came, Jacob sent him out. Go check on your brothers. And he came back with a bad report. And so here, I think Joseph is treating them a little how they treated him. And perhaps he throws them in jail so they will get a small taste of what he's had to endure because of them. Certainly three days in jail doesn't seem like too stiff a penalty to pay for trying to ruin his life. And as they're talking, I, I imagine Joseph stifling a laugh when his brothers say, we are honest men. Really? So honest that you threw me in a pit, sold me and covered it up. So honest that you pretended to have a marriage alliance to the tribe of Shechem and then slaughtered their entire tribe. The brothers may not be spies, but they are not honest men. Though Joseph does now give them an opportunity to be honest. This may seem mean and manipulative, but it's clear that Joseph is devising here an excellent test of their remorse and change. I think he wants to know, were they still filled with envy, hatred, deceit? I think it's also clear that Joseph really wants to see his only full-blooded brother, Benjamin. So he says, bring them to me. But in this, he arranges for an opportunity to betray their father's son, just as they had 20 years before. I don't know if you caught it, but at first, he's just going to send one son back and, and hold on to nine of them. But I think as he thinks about it over three days, he decides, no, let's do this. Let's leave one of them in captivity and send the other nine. Because I want to know, first of all, if they're still going to kind of operate as this mob and talk each other into worse sin. And I also want to know if they're going to sell out this brother like they did to me. Now, Joseph announces this plan and it leads to the brothers immediately feeling remorse. The next section, verses 28 through, 21 through 28, is the remorse. Then they said to one another, and this is in Hebrew, Joseph's over listening, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. 
They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Reportedly, the federal government has maintained what they call a federal conscience fund. You may not have heard of it, but it's where they put all the money that they've received from people who felt guilty about cheating the government, and they've mailed money. Apparently, there's over $3 million in this fund. Imagine feeling so guilty about cheating on your taxes or cheating on some money that you owe, so guilty that you actually send an anonymous amount of cash to make yourself feel better. I think there's something innate in us, our conscience, even when we get away with a sin or a crime, that it continues to eat at us. Our telltale hearts are pained with guilt. And guilt and remorse are big themes at this point in the story. It's a good thing that Joseph's brothers feel guilty over what they did to him. For 20 years, the brothers might have thought that they had gotten away with the sin of selling Joseph. But it doesn't take much for their guilt to resurface and for them to think that their current troubles are punishment for their treatment of him. Maybe you can identify with Joseph's brothers. Maybe you've gotten away with something. Maybe you've done something, something from your past that still haunts you. And as soon as someone mentions anything remotely connected to it or reminds you of it, you break out in a cold sweat. Maybe guilt, panic flood over you. And as much as you try to hide it, to forget about it, to repress it, it's, it's still there. The scriptures remind us that you may think you got away with it, but you didn't. God knows what you did, why you did it, and how you did it. And he's waiting for you to bring it to the light, to repent of it, to make it right. Or he might just bring it into the light for you. And as difficult as that is, it's a huge relief to because the truth sets us free, always. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, but also a worldly sorrow that leads to death. We're going to feel sorrow over our sin, but will it be the worldly sorrow that hangs on to it and suffers for it? Or will it become godly sorrow that leads to repentance and freedom?
getting back to the text, I, I wondered why Joseph took Simeon. Did you wonder that? Maybe he was the brother that Joseph was the most angry with, or he was the least humble and contrite. Uh, maybe it had something to do with trading the second son of Leah for the second son of Rachel, uh, Simeon for Benjamin. I think more likely that Joseph has now overheard the oldest, Reuben, say, hey, I told you guys not to hurt Joseph. In fact, I think it, it affects him so much, that's why he weeps. He realizes that his oldest brother didn't want to do that. And so now he realizes that he's not responsible, so he's maybe taking Simeon, who was the second born, and making him holding him responsible. So he holds him and the other brothers leave, but Joseph plants their money. He gives them their money back, right? And they are traveling home and one of them discovers, oh, we've still got our silver in our sacks. They tremble. They're immediately confused by this and they, they even blame it on God. What is this that God has done to us? It's interesting, this is the first time they've even mentioned God, any of the brothers. I wonder, uh, the silver and the sacks, that, that might have been kindness on Joseph's part. You know, hey, I can't take money from my brothers, It'll probably from my dad. I can't do that, I've got to give it back. But I also wonder if maybe that was added pressure to this test that he's given him because now they're going to have to return with Benjamin under the suspicion of both being spies and thieves. Maybe it's just a subtle reminder of the silver that they had received for selling Joseph. I don't know. But the fact that they feel so guilty when they find it, they assume that God is punishing them. This reminds me of the phrase, from Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues. Guilt stays with them. And now in the last section of the text, the nine brothers return, return home only to encounter another refusal. This time, the refusal of their father. Verses 29 through 38, when they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, 
Kill my two sons if I do not bring them back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So the brothers bring their report to dad, to Jacob. And it seems to be honest, accurate. But Jacob is now horror-stricken to hear that Benjamin is being demanded. That Simeon has been left to die and that they've returned with their money. I mean, Jacob is at the point of complete meltdown here. When he says, you bereave me of my children, Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Four things. But he's actually 0 for 4 in that list. He's not right about any of them. Joseph and Simeon are both alive. Benjamin will not be ultimately be taken from him. And this is not, not all coming against him. God is working this for his good. He can't see God moving behind the scenes, but we know that God is being faithful to his covenant promises that he's given to each one of the patriarchs and he gave to Jacob in Genesis 28, the promise of land, descendants, blessing. All Jacob can see is, hey, we're starving here and now I'm losing my sons one at a time. So he's got to cut his losses. He's just responding to what he sees. Yet actually everything is working for him. I think we've quoted this a number of times with this, this, this series, especially with Joseph, that all things work together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. That's the promise to New Testament believers. But the covenant promises that God is staying faithful to. But Jacob can't see him. And it's clear even now, I've already mentioned this, but it comes up again here at the end that only Rachel's kids count to Jacob. He says, Benjamin's the only one left. I mean, how insulting is that? I mean, the brothers have to be looking at each other. What are we? Chop liver. But Jacob's in despair. Because he's put all his hope and he's found his life in Rachel and her two sons. And the threat of losing the things and the people that are most dear to us can make us forget the character and the promises of God. So we end this passage. We know there's, there's much more to come at the end of Genesis, but we end here. If we just stop here. We have a father who refuses to send his son as a ransom to gain back the life of his other son. A father who is so unwilling to part with his favorite son that he already counts the son they left behind who would be freed if they brought Benjamin. But he counts him as dead. Simeon's dead. Jacob was the father who couldn't part with one son and would not give him up to free another. 
thank God that he is, our heavenly father is a father who is not like Jacob. You see, every person on earth, in a sense, is Simeon, bound in the prison of punishment for their sins, with no hope except to be ransomed by another. And Jesus is that son that the father had to choose whether to send as a ransom or to not. And Jesus wasn't just one of God's 12 sons, right? He is his one and only, his only beloved son. And he was also fully God, right? The three are one. And Jesus wasn't sent to earth just to show up as part of a deal to release prisoners like what we're seeing here with Simeon and Benjamin. He was sent to die. Jesus had to take the legal penalty of our sin. So he had to die a criminal's death. God's justice demands that someone has to die to atone for sin. Every one of our sins. So either you will die for your sin, or you can find someone to die for them. The only catch is they've got to be perfect. And only one perfect person can do that for you. And he's already done it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Praise God that he was not like Jacob, wanting to keep his son and letting us rot in prison. But he sent him as a ransom for each one of us so that we would be free.